been a part of that feeding of the 5,000, which was really more like 10 or 15 or 20,000 because in the Bible, they only count the men who were present, and yet we know that many men had their wives there with them, children there with them, so it was a large group, and Jesus fed them all with five loaves and a few fishes, and that really got them motivated and inspired, because everybody likes a free meal, right? And so they follow him from uh, Bethsaida, a little ways across the water to Capernaum, still within the, re the region of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they pursue him and um, challenge him. You might think that the, uh, that miracle of the, of the feeding of the multitudes would really have brought them on board as followers of Christ, and they were following him, but then they challenge him, what else are you going to do for us? What else are you going to show us? Give us some more signs and wonders. And we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, how people who are seeking after those things basically are never satisfied. <clears throat> Have you ever heard someone say, well, if God would just do this or the other, or the other thing, I would believe? And then God does something, and it's not enough, right? They want to see more. And that's the kind of people that Jesus is dealing with here. I'm going to read. We left off in verse uh, 37. I want to read verses 35 uh, through 37, and then continue on through verse 44. This first part is just to get us back to where we left off. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. That's where we left off last week. Now we pick it up in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of his he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up, or her, <laughs> at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur against yourselves, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray for your insight. Uh, the, the wisdom and guidance of your Holy Spirit that we might understand and gain all that you have for us today in this passage of Scripture. Please bless this time that we spend together studying your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see Jesus again emphasizing his origins being not of the earth, but from heaven. Even though Jesus was born of a woman, we know that, the Virgin Mary. His father, we also know, is none other than God himself. And in fact, Jesus pre-existed in heaven before he was born into this world. John 1.1, 1, 1, the very beginning of this book of John, we've studied this several months ago. In the beginning... And that would take us back to the book of Genesis. There's a direct correlation between Genesis 1 and John 1. And so we have in the beginning was the word, the Greek word logos. And it actually means basically God speaking through Jesus. Jesus is God's word to us. God speaks to us through Jesus Christ. He is the logos. The Word was with God, the Father, in the beginning. Remember how it tells us in Genesis 
God said, let us make man in our image. Telling us there was more than one person there, more than one entity. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when Jesus tells these folks that he's speaking with here in Capernaum, I have come down from heaven, he means it in the most literal sense. And then John 8, 58, John is conversing there, I mean Jesus is conversing there with the Pharisees, and he said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What's God's name? I am. Jesus is telling them he's God, and he's also telling them that he pre-existed with God the Father before the creation of the world. And so he's telling these people the same thing. I've come down from heaven. And then he tells them why he came down from heaven. Not to do my own will. And folks, this is one of the mysteries of the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. No, but the term Trinity describes the nature of God. The triune God. One God, three persons. The Bible very, very clearly, specifically the New Testament, teaches this, this theological perspective of the Trinity. And that's one of the things that sets apart, in my opinion, true, biblical, if you don't mind the word, orthodox Christianity from many groups that claim to be Christian but are really cultish in nature, you will find that within every cult group, they may speak of Christ, they may claim to believe in Him, but they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely important. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is a bit of a mystery. One of the best basic simple analogies I've ever heard used is to compare it to the compound we know as H2O, water. You can, you can basically find H2O in three different conditions. Liquid, um, you know, gas or vapor, steam, right? If you boil water on the stove, what happens? It steams up, it begins to evaporate and steam up into the air. You have solid, liquid, and then you have that vapor. It's all H2O. If you examine the components of those three different elements, ice, frozen water, liquid water, vaporized water, they all contain the same elements. It's all water, but it manifests itself in three different ways. Does that help? Does that make sense? But it is a bit of a mystery. It's a little bit beyond our ability to comprehend as human beings, so we we take it by faith. The Bible teaches it. We believe it. And another part of that mystery, notice what Jesus says here, that he came down from heaven not to do his own will. Another mystery, another part of this mystery concerning the Trinity is that the Bible also teaches us that even though all three are God, Holy Spirit is not an it. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never honors or glorifies himself. He glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. And if you were to ask me why, I would tell you, ask God when you get there. Because <laughs> I don't know. That's just the way it is. So if you see someone who is really promoting the work of the Holy Spirit, and yet that 
work doesn't glorify Jesus, if it doesn't point to Jesus, then there's something wrong there. Because the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. Jesus always points to the Father. And the Father turns right around and points back to Jesus. Because he's, you know, he's going to bring all enemies to the feet of Jesus. He came not to do my own will, he says, but the will of him who sent me. Obviously, he's speaking of God the Father. So Jesus' submission to the Father is confirmed right here in this statement. And then Matthew 26, 39, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying just before he's going to be turned over to the uh, temple guard and the Roman soldiers who both come together to arrest him. Judas kisses him on the cheek, revealing him to be the one they're looking for. But just prior to that, he's there in the garden praying. Peter, James, and John go along. They stay back a short ways and fall asleep. Remember? But he's praying. It says he went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see that the humanity of Christ exposed here, expressed here in his prayer. But we, we also see his absolute submission to the Father. So he says to these folks, Come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we know that ultimately that will is that Jesus would become the sacrifice for our sins on the cross of Calvary. But he also gives, shows us some other things here. The will of God is a many-faceted thing. If you may recall from previous weeks, John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus says, his very sustenance, the thing that propels him onward and sustains him. So obviously, again, he's speaking of spiritual food. But his food, his sustenance, the thing he lives for is to do the Father's will. Good example for us to follow, is it not? Admittedly, we fall short on a regular basis but Jesus is our role model our example the one we are to follow to aspire to be like now we move on to verse 39 this is the will of the father who sent me that all he has given me of all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day this is the will of the Father. So having told them he came down from heaven to do the will of the Father, he now proceeds to tell them what the Father's will is. This is the will of the, will of the Father who sent me. Another thing to point out about our Lord and Savior, Jesus was not and is not some self-made guru. There's a lot of those around, aren't there? Even within the Christian church. He's not some self-made guru. He's the one and only Son of God sent down from heaven by the Creator of all things. He says, This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all He has given me I should lose nothing. Now, at this point in this verse, I honestly like some other translations better. This is the New International Version, the NIV John 6:39 NIV This is the will of him who sent me that I should shall lose none of all those he has given me but raise them up at the last day. So it makes it a little clearer that he's obviously talking about people that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. Those who are those and this is going to take us back into a continued discussion of what we studied last week. All the human beings that God knew before the beginning of time would believe in him. Do you believe God's capable of that? 
before God even created this world, God has always existed. He's eternal. Alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. So do you believe that it's possible, not only possible, that it's actually true, that God already knew before he created this world every single person that would come to him? Yes. And that's what we're talking about here. All of, all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, or that I should lose none of all those he has given me. So he's speaking here, not just in the present tense, but past, present, and future. All the human beings that God knew before the beginning of time would believe in him and receive Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There's three key words that are often used in this context. Election. Predestination. And foreknowledge. And God is in charge of all three of those. The election. I vote for you. I vote for you. But again, it's based upon the fact that he knows that you're going to vote for him. Predestination, that means God knew your destination before you were ever born. Foreknowledge, and again, we talked about his foreknowledge. He knew all things. He knows all things before they ever happen. And the way I like to put it, <clears throat> all of this has to do with where the sovereignty of God. I mean, God is sovereign, right? He's in control. He's in charge. He's the ultimate authority in the universe. Correct? But all of this election, predestination, foreknowledge has to do with where the sovereignty of God and the free will of man intersect. Because God has created us with a free will with the ability to make choices. Right choices, wrong choices. Otherwise, we would just be robots or puppets. We'll leave that up to Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and all those people. Klaus Schwab, all the globalists, all the trans, or not, well, transhumanists, but post-humanists. We've had an awful lot of publicity about transhumanists humanist or transgendered I should say but the ultimate end game is trans not transgender but transhuman posthuman hybrid cyborg we know if you if you don't know about any of this then you obviously are asleep the artificial intelligence the microchipping everything that's happening why? Because Satan is the prince of this world and his goal is to destroy God's creation and that means you and I first and foremost. While God's creation is worried about destroying the planet, I tell you right now, the only one who can destroy this planet is God. Because even with regard to the last times, the, the end times, the last days. The Bible tells us, unless the days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Now man is going to bring us right to the brink of annihilation. I believe we'll be watching from the balcony. The rapture of the church will happen first. And then throughout the seven years of tribulation, yes, man will bring us to the brink of destruction and annihilation. But God will not allow that to happen. Because right at the last moment, Jesus is coming back with us to establish his rule and his reign on this planet. I've watched and listened and read to so many very knowledgeable men from the scientific field and related fields who have confirmed, and by the way, did you know that you can know things, you can know the truth as a believer because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. 
I didn't need a scientist to tell me that climate change was a bunch of hooey. But guess what? A growing number are coming out and saying exactly that. I already knew that. I accepted Christ as a young boy, thank God, praise God. That's why it's important for families to be in church. Not out camping, not out boating, not out doing all these recreational things. I know a family that was like that. Loved the Lord big time. But most of the time, they were out doing something recreational on the weekends. Now neither child is following God. So make up your minds, what do you want? I wish we had more young families here. Pray for that. We need more young families here. They need to be in church. But, you know, I've seen it so many times. These Christian parents, I've shared with you how when I, my mother died, I moved to California. I was 17 years old, almost an adult. And my uncle said, we go to church every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, and every Sunday night. And by the way, you will be going too. How many parents today even have the guts to do that? Most of the Christian parents I know let the kids run the show. Not to mention the non-Christian parents who let the kids really run the show. But then these parents are brokenhearted, devastated when their kids grow up and they don't follow God. You think? Really? Are you shocked? You didn't teach them. You didn't train them. You didn't take them to church. And what do you expect? It makes me mad. It makes me mad. I got my hand wet. I spilled my water on myself. Got all worked up, yeah? Now, Having said that, does that mean that every Christian family, even the ones that make a concerted effort to train their children up in the way that they should go, does that mean that none of them will ever fall away now? And some of the greatest men and women of God that I know have had problems in their families. One of our children got involved with some very liberally minded believers, started reading some very liberal Christian literature, and ultimately pretty much renounced his or her, I'm not going to say which, faith. And so it's been probably a 25-year process or so praying for that child who's not a child anymore by any means. I did have a talk with that person last summer. Challenged them to return. And we just had a text a few days ago that would seem to indicate that has happened. But again, if we don't do our part, we can't be mad at God. We can't blame God. We can't blame the child who's not a child anymore. If we didn't do what we were supposed to do, train a child up in the way that he should go, when he's older, he will not depart from it. I'm not sure how I got there, but I trust it's something the Holy Spirit wanted me to talk about. So now maybe, as a result of the things I've just said, maybe some people are feeling guilty, embarrassed, ashamed. I don't, don't be that. You have to start with right now. You can't change the past. All you can do is make a decision from this point on to do everything you can to point your children, your grandchildren, whoever it might be, in the right direction. The enemy would like to beat you up. The enemy li would like to heap condemnation upon you. And I don't, I don't think I know of any parent that hasn't at one time or another said, man, I really blew it. I just didn't do a very good job. And You can't do that. You did the best you could or the best you knew how at the time, or maybe you didn't. 
repent. Ask God to forgive you and move on. Don't dwell on the past. Don't allow the devil to beat you up. Receive the love, the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness that God offers and move on. Because after all I've just said, at the end of the day, every individual is responsible for their own relationship with God or lack thereof. So maybe you didn't teach your child the way you should have. Maybe you didn't set the best example for them growing up on how to be a follower of Christ. But at the end of the day, they have to work out their own relationship with God. Like Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a balance in all this. Yes, we do have a responsibility to train up our children in the way they should go. And yes, many times we fail, we fall short. And I would say more and more with each new generation, just like the Israelites, God told them, you are to teach your children and your children's children. They were to pass on generation after generation all the th great things that God had done for them and they failed to do it. And look what happened to Israel. They lost their land. They went into captivity. But now, they're back in the land. Why is that? Because we're in the last days. And God said that in the last days, they would return to their land. It's never happened before in human history. Do you know that? There is no other nation in the history of the world that has ceased to exist, especially for 2,000 years, and then become a nation again. It's a specific, direct fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But why did they lose what they had? They failed to obey God. They failed to hand down to their children, their children's children, their children's children's children, all the truths about God. Okay? That's all extra and for free, no extra charge. Okay. <laughs> so Jesus says, I shall lose none of all those he has given me. All the human beings that God knew before the beginning of time would believe in him and receive him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He says, I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up. So in giving all those that will receive him to Jesus, the Father also makes it known that his will, that's what we're talking about here, right? Jesus is explaining to these people that he came down from heaven to do the will of the Father. What is that will? First of all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, or I shall lose none of all those he has given me. Secondly, that they would be raised up. So in giving all those that will receive him to Jesus, the Father also makes it known that his will is to raise them up from the dead and impart to them and us everlasting life. This is the will of the Father. At the last day, at the end of the age, this current era, Matthew 28, 20, the second part of the verse, Jesus is giving his great commission to the disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Trinity. And then Jesus says to his disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This current age, the age of man, if you will, it's been going on about 6,000 years. The Bible also refers to the time of the Gentiles, which began after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the time of the Gentiles will come to an end as God refocuses attention on the children of Israel and their restoration and drawing them to himself and to his son, Jesus Christ. He says he's going to raise us up at the last day. So if we're not part of the rapture, and I kind of think we're going to be, but in the unlikely event that some of us here die before the rapture, well then at the end of this age, when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom here on earth, 
The righteous will be resurrected from the dead. In fact, that will happen at the rapture of the church. So either way, you're not going to miss it. Verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus reiterates his previous statement, but he adds some more specificity here. This is the will of him who sent me, everyone who sees the Son. Now, there have been some along the way that have claimed to see Jesus. In fact, the interesting thing, I think we talked about this not long ago, there were something like 200 Muslim men in Gaza who claimed to have had a vision of Jesus Christ and they became Christians. Did you hear about that? And then there was another guy, he was an Iranian terrorist and he was in jail and he pretty much lost his faith in Allah, praise God, and he gets a visit from Jesus in his jail cell. But these are visions, apparitions, technically nobody since Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Now Apostle Paul, Saul, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. But the point is that over the course of the last 2,000 years, many millions of people, multitudes upon multitudes, have not seen Jesus with their physical eyes. How is that possible? It's by the illumination of the Holy Spirit to be able to see him. And even Jesus, remember we talked about this, I think it was either last week or the week before. Thomas, doubting Thomas, wouldn't believe that Jesus was risen unless Thomas was able to touch the wounds in his hand and in his side. Jesus appears before them. First time Thomas wasn't there. Second time he was. He sees Jesus and then he falls to his knees. My Lord, my God, he believes. Jesus says, that's great, Thomas. Blessed are you because you have seen and have believed. But blessed is he who has not seen and has believed. And we read from Peter also where Peter talks about that. Though you've not seen him, you believe in him. And so when Jesus says, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, obviously that cannot be limited to only those who got to see him when he was here on earth. Anyone can see Jesus, not with your physical eyes, but with your heart and your mind via the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And he does, as we talked about earlier this morning, the Logos, the voice of God, the spoken word of God, Jesus Christ, speaks to us through his holy scriptures. This is the will of him who sent me, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. Again, we see the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's free will. God gives us the gift of faith. Because I talk about this a lot, don't I? I tell you, pray for your family, your friends, your loved ones, whoever you're concerned about regarding their spiritual condition. Pray that God gives them the gift of faith. Here again is that intersection. God gives us the gift of faith, but we must choose to believe. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him. Joshua 24, 15. If it seems Joshua is addressing the Israelites, he's challenging them. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua puts a choice before them. God will not force you to serve him, and he will not prohibit you from serving him. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him. It's a choice. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death. Again, I've told you many times, 
It doesn't take a rocket scientist. God is pro-life. Satan is pro-death. So simple. You can apply that. Obviously, it applies to the whole issue of abortion. Pro-life, pro-death. But you can apply it in virtually every area of life. God is the author of life, the giver of life. He's pro-life. The devil, John 10.10, is the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. So, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. I don't know quite what to say about that, but it seems like a lot of people don't like being entrusted with that choice and that decision. But that's actually a wonderful, amazing, marvelous thing. The grace of God, you may choose. But it's an awesome responsibility because if you don't choose life, if you don't choose Christ, then you have automatically, some people say I'm neutral. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. You know, that doesn't work. If you don't choose, you've chosen. You see? The devil would love you to go through life neutral. You know, and we talk about you know, there is obviously an amazing, incredible increase in the occult, in the demonic, in Satan worship. They've now, starting across the country, it's been approved, it's being allowed, after-school Satan clubs. How many of you heard about that? Can you believe in the United States of America? We have after-school Satan clubs? Right here in New Mexico, we have the Satanic Abortion Clinic. Wow. I'm sure glad I know Jesus, especially living in New Mexico. Yes. It's hard to imagine. We seem like such a, you know, we're, we're big geographically, population-wise, we're very small. We seem to be very insignificant, but somehow uh, Wuhan Gruesome keeps getting in the national news. She's in there again because she's pulling another deal with gun rights and so forth. You know. And also, I don't know if I mentioned this. This is a matter for that you really need to pray about. She's trying to bring laws into play that will bring private schools like Calvary Christian Academy under the jurisdiction of the public school system. Which means they can then dictate our curriculum. We use Christian curriculum. The public schools don't, as you, I'm sure you know. Please keep that in prayer. Please keep that in prayer. I suppose one of greatest, Satan's greatest deceptions is to convince as many people as possible they don't have a choice. We've talked about this before too. How many people today live in that victim mentality. I'm a victim. You know, the whole world is against me. Well, maybe the whole, yeah, the whole world probably is against you, but God's not. If God be for us, who can be against us? Right? But people don't realize, we need to help them understand, wait a minute, you have a choice. We talked about this last week for believers, not going through life in survival mode, but going through life in a victorious mode filled with the joy, the peace, the righteousness of God. Even believers struggle with this, but the non-believer, the enemy has them in a place where they don't think they have a choice. We need to let them know you do have a choice. God has given you a free will. He's given you a choice. You can choose life, not only in terms of abortion rights or getting rid of abortion rights. Choose life, but you can choose life for all eternity. You can choose. Think about that. How incredible is it? How amazing is that, folks? That God has given us the ability to choose to live forever in His presence, in paradise. It's pretty amazing. So, therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants, 
may live. This is the will of him who sent me. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have, will have, everlasting life. And according to Peter, listen to this. Now it gets really amazing. This is God's will for everyone. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise. He's talking about why hasn't Jesus come back yet. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Why hasn't Jesus already come? He's not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness. But he's long-suffering toward us. Why has Jesus delayed his return? And one of the prayers I pray every day, please don't delay it any longer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. I pray that every day. Everything I pray about, I say, Lord, bless this person with health and strength and long life, should you tarry. But if you don't tarry, then we don't have to worry about long life. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, before any more of us have to die. But he is long-suffering toward us. Listen to this. Jesus is talking to these folks in Capernaum about God's will. Peter tells us, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when someone fails to come to repentance, is that God's will? But why does it happen then? God's sovereignty, man's free will, you have a choice. If God's will be done, you will be with him forever in paradise. But guess what? You have a choice. If God's will is that all should come to repentance and be saved, and yet we know that many, if not most, will not and do not, then man's free will, choosing, his choosing, must play a part in the process. Not that we are saved by works, but we do have a choice. And again, Calvinism denies that. I'm sure John Calvin was a great guy. I just happen to disagree with him. But again, it's one of those mysteries we can't fully understand until we get there. I would say, if you don't understand, how does this work? Predestined, election, foreknowledge, God's sovereignty, man's free will. Ask him when you get there. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about him. Wow. He's just laying some deep, heavy theological truth on them. And that's after he'd already fed them a great lunch or dinner. They complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. So apparently they were grumbling, murmuring amongst themselves, just like the Israelites in the wilderness when God gave them the manna. Who does he think he is anyway? Because, because I, he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And it's interesting, it's not really even the bread part that they're, they're oblivious to that. It's the fact that he says he came down from heaven that has them in a tizzy. They said, verse 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we knew? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? Quest, they question his heavenly origins based upon their false belief that Joseph is Jesus' biological father. Now, I guess you can't fault them too much for that. How would they know differently? But although it's without question, Jesus lived an exemplary life growing up in Nazareth. His, he, his local yokel status, if you will, caused the people to question his authenticity. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus comments on this. 
Verse 1, he went out from there and came to his own country, the hill country of Nazareth, just west of the Sea of Galilee. And his disciples followed him, and when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? And yet, just like these folks who had witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes, and they heard this incredible wisdom coming out of the mouth of Jesus, his hometown people, even acknowledging his amazing knowledge, wisdom, insight, the miracles that he performed, then they turn right around and they say, verse 3, Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Again, a lot of people like that today. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own house. And so the stumbling block for them was, Wait a minute, he came from our town. He's one of us. How could he possibly be the Messiah? And sometimes it's difficult for us to have an effective witness with those we've grown up with. You ever experienced that? Those who knew us before we were saved. They sometimes tend to be skeptical of the genuineness of our conversion. It can go both ways. Some people could be blown away by the change. Others say, well, I don't know. I just don't buy it. Right? This will fizzle out. It won't last. And so at times I find myself as led by the Holy Spirit to pray that God will bring a believer or believers across the, uh, their path that they can relate to and respect. I pray, Lord, if they, if they won't listen to me, bring somebody across their path that they will listen to. It, it shouldn't be a pride thing that I have to be the one to lead them to Christ. I just want to see them get saved, right? So God, bring someone, a friend, a neighbor, somebody they can identify and relate to, because maybe it's that hometown prophet syndrome. They won't listen to mom, they won't listen to dad, they won't listen to Uncle Billy, yada, yada. Then bring somebody to them, Lord. See, we need to be thoughtful and creative with our prayers. Not just, oh Lord, please save Susie, Billy, Bobby, John. Please save them. That's kind of a generic shotgun prayer, I call it. Be specific. Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, guide you. What do they need? What's it going to take to bring them to Christ? Lord, bring them someone. Give them the gift of faith. Give them the gift of repentance. Pray specific prayers, and guess what? You'll get specific answers. It's good. Okay, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves. As loving and compassionate as Jesus is, he's never hesitant to put people in their place as needed. Meekness is not wimpiness. Christ was meek. And meekness in the Bible means power under control. You recognize the power and the authority you have in Christ. It's not a fleshly power or authority. It does not emanate from within you. It comes from God. And sometimes we all need to get a little better at knowing how to use that. Because sometimes people need to be confronted, put in their place. If someone's gossiping, backbiting, sowing discord, and then we're afraid to um, confront it, then we become part of the problem. We need to learn how to be like Jesus. Meek, power under control. Brother, I love you, but you shouldn't be talking about so-and-so like that. That's ungodly. It's sinful. It's harmful. I could pray with you right now to repent. <laughs> Okay, he goes on, verse 44. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So that's another part of my prayer that I pray for people. Lord, please draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, you always hear me talk about the gift of faith. This is where the gift of faith comes in. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, God's unmerited favor, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. There it is, the gift of faith. You're saved by grace through faith, but guess where the faith comes from? It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. I would propose to you, based upon 2 Peter 3.9, where we read that God is not willing that any should perish. God gives the gift of faith to anyone and everyone who truly wants it. Think about that. Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Proverbs 8.17, I love those who love me. Do you see that? Who does God love? He loves those who love him. Do you love God? He loves you. And those who seek me diligently. I wonder how many people, and you and I have both known them through the years, many times say, well, I tried that. I tried God. I tried Jesus. I tried. It didn't work. You heard anybody say that? Were they diligent? Did they seek God with their whole heart? Or was it a half-hearted, flippant, semi-serious effort to become religious? Are you religious? Well, you know, there, there's a positive aspect to doing something religiously. That means you do it with discipline, with consistency. But as you've heard me say before, religion is man's efforts to reach God. So we, hence we have many, many religions in the world, don't we? With all these different ways of man trying to reach God, God only gave one way, Jesus Christ. God reached out to us through his son, Jesus. So Christianity, being a believer, being a Christian, is not about religion. It's about relationship. Okay? Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who, what? Diligently seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please him. The, gift, the faith is a gift that he gives. Ask him for it. God, please fill me with faith. Give me the gift of faith. Help me. Enable me. And then he rewards those who diligently seek him. Why should I have to be diligent? Because <laughs> God said so. <laughs> I'd say Jesus was pretty diligent when he died on the cross for your sins, wouldn't you? I'd say he was pretty diligent when he allowed... The Bible clearly states... No man can take my life from me. I lay it down willingly. If Jesus didn't want to be beaten by those Roman soldiers, guess what? They wouldn't have gotten near him. He would have called down 10,000 angels and they would have raised him up. He was diligent in his suffering and his death so that you and I might be saved. And it's not that we have to be diligent in doing good works because good works can't save us, but we do have to be diligent in seeking after him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you diligently seek him, he will reward you with the gift of faith, which leads to forgiveness of sin, which leads to the salvation of your soul. That sounds like a good deal to me. And then he says, I will raise him up at the last day. So God's will involves all of this. It involves the resurrection from the dead. It involves eternal life in paradise. 
But here's another. Um, we've talked about mysteries today. Spiritual mysteries. God has made known to us to the degree and to the extent that we're able to grasp them and understand them. The full knowledge, the full understanding according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When we see him face to face, we will know him even as we are known. But here's another amazing scriptural paradox. The Bible is full of verses encouraging us to seek God, and yet, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. God tells us over and over again, seek him and you will find him. But then he turns around and Jesus says, he came to seek us. I will leave you with this clothing, closing thought. For those who embrace a true saving faith in God through his son Jesus Christ, it's a matter of seeking him until he finds you. Or him seeking us till we find him. Let's stand. Again, God's sovereignty up against the God-given free will of human beings. When you work together with God, it's a great combination. You know what the result is? Eternal life in paradise. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. If anyone has a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. Lots of those. God loves it. God loves to hear from us. The enemy wants to tell you, don't bother God, he's too busy. You're not important enough. That's a lie from the pit of hell. He wants to hear from us. Father, you saw all these hands that just went up. You know each person inside and out. You tell us in your word, even the very hairs on our heads are numbered. You created us. We are created in your image. And in Christ, we are your children. We are part of your forever family, Lord, and you love us and you care for us, so we lift up now to you. First of all, someone, anyone here today, or anyone that's represented by someone here today that has economic issues, financial issues, financial needs, Lord, that can be so stressful even paralyzing, but we pray for encouragement today for those struggling in that area, for wisdom, for guidance, for provision. Lord, please give each one that's struggling in that area supernatural wisdom, guidance, direction, what to do, what not to do. Lord, sometimes we just need to wait upon you. Other times we need to act. We need to move. We need to do something. But I just pray for each one that you would take away the hopelessness, the discouragement, that you would provide for the necessities of life. And Lord, food, shelter, clothing, all the transportation. Lord, we live in a world today where you can't really get around on foot very easily. So please provide for them. And please provide people that will come alongside and help them. But we ask you just to bind all discouragement, depression, anxiety from their hearts and minds this morning. Give them hope. Give them faith. Give them trust. And Lord, not only for those struggling financially, but for those who are struggling with um, mental and emotional issues, Lord, that's part of who we are. You made us. Body, soul, and spirit. We have a mind. We have a will. We have emotions. And Lord, sometimes they can get pretty messed up with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Bitterness, resentment, jealousy. Lord, for those things, we ask your forgiveness because we know that they are sin. They're wrong. But it happens to almost all of us at one time or another. Please forgive us. Please cleanse us. Please heal us from all the wrong thoughts, feelings, emotions that we have been harboring. And we ask that you would uh, heal the brokenhearted here this morning. You set the captives free. Lord, we know the greatest captivity is not the captivity of our physical bodies, but of our mind, our will, our emotions. Please bring healing and deliverance to anyone here today, anyone watching on the internet, wherever they might be. Bring healing and deliverance from hurtful, painful experiences in our lives and help us to 
look to you and trust in you. You promised, Lord, if we would bring everything to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that you would guard our hearts and minds with your peace that passes all understanding. We pray for that here today. We pray also for physical healing. Lord, whether it's a cold, flu, COVID-19, allergies, cancer, Lord, nothing is more difficult than anything else for you. From the, the least physical affliction to the worst, Lord, you're greater than all these things. We pray, Lord, for healing and deliverance from physical pain and illness, and we will be quick to give you the glory and the honor and the praise for it. But Lord, sometimes it might be like what you told Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, Lord. And if it's not your will to heal us, then give us your grace. Give us your strength that we may endure whatever you have set before us and still give you the glory and the honor and the praise. Finally, we pray for marriages, friendships, broken relationships, Lord, for healing. We know that as we talked about today, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But you've come with, that we might have life and life more abundantly. Lord, please pour out that abundant life upon those marriages that are struggling, those friendships that have been damaged. Lord, you are the great uh, healer, the great uh, restorer. We pray for healing, restoration, and reconciliation. And give us wisdom on how we can be part of that process. Again, what we should say, not say, do, not do. Lord, help us to be the first to initiate forgiveness and reconciliation we give you the praise and the thanks and the glory asking now to receive our final offering of praise this morning in jesus name amen